Open your Bibles up to Luke chapter 2. Let those little ones go out there. Some parents going to sign them out still. Well, you might be wondering what we're going to be doing this next year. What book are we going to be going verse by verse through? And so we're going to go back to the New Testament, and we're actually going to go through the book of 1 Corinthians. So we'll start that, Lord willing, next week or maybe the week after. I don't know, we might have an introduction to it in Acts. So, But we're, today we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. Technically, this is the second day of Christmas. So if you celebrate the 12 days of Christmas, then you've got a couple more days to go. So keep uh, celebrating that. Well, during the Christmas season, many children are in Christmas programs, and sometimes in a school or in a church, and parents and grandparents love to go to those. When I was in South Carolina, I was a Christian school administrator for preschool. We had about 100 children who would perform each Christmas on stage, and then you had hundreds more parents in the auditorium, and I would sit in the front because I had to get up on the stage quickly. And uh, I would turn around, and I would see all these parents and these grandparents during the performance. That was actually more entertaining than watching the children. And all these parents and grandparents had their phones out. And, in fact, it was really remarkable if you stood at the back of the auditorium. It looked like a light show from the back, you know. But all these parents are, you know, applauding their kids and smiling and trying to get them to smile. and, And parents love to go to those kind of things. And you could say that. At those Christmas programs and different performances like that, that grandparents and parents are marveling at their kids. They are sitting there in wonder as their kids are performing, and sometimes maybe a little bit embarrassing for the parents, but uh, they still enjoy it. And all of us as parents and grandparents love those days when, especially even as our kids get older and they start performing in other types of programs and are or sports, and we see them doing well and excelling in those things. We love to, to see their accomplishments. And there, there's those times where you sit back and you just marvel at what God has given to them, the gifts he's given to them. Well, in our text today, we find adults who are marveling at a baby and what was said about him. Mary and Joseph held their baby in their arms, and they walked into the temple And as they walked in, they met a person who said some pretty amazing things about this baby, Jesus. Typically, when parents are marveling at their baby, it's because they have, you know, chubby cheeks or they say their first word. But that was not the case with Jesus. It was actually about what his life was going to be like. Think of all the things that were said about Jesus that, that Mary and Joseph heard, right? Mary heard the angel say, that she was going to have a baby of the Holy Spirit. It's going to be a miracle. This baby is going to be king. He's going to be the king of Israel. This baby would be called holy. He would be called the son of God. Think about that. And Joseph even, he heard that this baby should be called Jesus because why? He's going to save his people from their sins. But this baby is going to be called Emmanuel. He's going to be called God with us. So think of all this information that they have heard. Even the shepherds came there and, and told them at that manger there about this one who is going to be Christ the Lord, a Savior. So they have all this information. And then we see them in Luke chapter 2. Look down in verse 33. 
they hear another man named Simeon prophesy about this baby. And after they hear all this stuff, particularly from Simeon, Luke 2, 33, the Bible says, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. They were amazed at the remarkable prophecies that were declared about their baby. And our text today is Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 35. And the title of my sermon is Marvel at Who Jesus Is. Marvel at Who Jesus Is. What I want to do when we finish this sermon is I want us to consider Christ and to marvel at the person and the work of Jesus. There are really three sections of this text here this morning that highlight the three key attributes of Jesus. So I want to look at who the scripture says Jesus is from Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 35. We're going to read this together. Would you stand with me as we read Luke chapter 2? I'm going to start in verse 21. I'll read out loud. You may follow along. I'm reading from the ESV version this morning. Luke 2, verse 21. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen, seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you will bless the teaching, preaching of your word this morning. I pray we will all receive your word by faith. Pray your Holy Spirit will illumine our minds and give us the strength and the grace to live your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want us to marvel this morning at the person and work of Jesus Christ. So first, our first point is this, and I don't have slides so you can just write this down if you want to. We're going to marvel that he is the redeemer who was foreshadowed. So first, we're going to marvel that he is the redeemer who was foreshadowed. 
Luke 2 starts off with Mary pregnant, and they are, Mary and Joseph are traveling down to Bethlehem. And when they arrive, there were no guest quarters for them. Really, that's what you find there in Bethlehem when they go there in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, when there's no room in the inn. Really, the idea is there was no room in the relatives' quarters. In other words, when you went to a city like that, you would stay with relatives, and they would have guest rooms you would stay in. And there were were no more guest rooms for them. So Mary and Joseph had to take shelter where the animals were kept. And there she delivered her baby. And after the baby was delivered, they laid laid him in a feeding trough. That was the place where the shepherds came, and they saw the Messiah. The scriptures does not say how long they stayed there. Maybe they stayed there one night in that, in that feeding trough or in that, um, that area where the animals, the animal stall. Maybe they stayed there for a couple nights. We're not really certain. We do know at some point, though, that they went into a home. Luke, or Matthew chapter 2, verse 11 says that they lived in a house. So at some point, they moved into a house, lived there for probably at least one year in Bethlehem. So so imagine Joseph at some point securing a a home and and living in that home and making that home for Mary and for the baby. Then eight days after the birth of Jesus, they would have gone to a local synagogue in Bethlehem to circumcise Jesus and to name him. You see that in verse 21. Verse 21, at the end of eight days. So Jesus is eight days old in human years. Of course, he's the eternal God, so we know that was not the beginning of his existence, but as far as a human, he was eight days old, and then he was circumcised, and they called him Jesus. So this was the day where they also named him. This was a very significant event, because typically at this event, you would name your baby after the father, and everyone would have assumed that Joseph was the father. Of course, he wasn't the father, right, because it was a miracle of the Holy Spirit that Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary. But they would assume that he would have been called Joseph. But the angels said to both Mary and to Joseph to name him Jesus. So they obeyed God's word to them and named him Jesus. So it's significant for that reason. But also it's significant because Jesus had to do this right in order for him to fulfill the whole law. Part of the law of Moses was to have all male children circumcised. So this ceremony and act was a sign that this family was dedicating their child to the Lord, and this child was going to be set apart into the covenant community of Israel. So the author here, Luke, wants his readers to know that Jesus, from from his birth, really began to fulfill the law perfectly. In fact, I'm not going to go through it, but if you heard me, when you heard me read those Verses, you probably heard me read about the law many times. And really five times in those verses, you see the law of Moses coming up. And it's kind of repetitive. It goes over and over. And, and why is that? It's again, because Luke wants us to know that Jesus did fulfill the law. In fact, Jesus was accused of coming to abolish the law. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said, No, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, what? but what to do what? But to fulfill them. That's right. So as the incarnate son of God, Jesus fulfilled the law. Part of that was circumcision. And, he, and then he lived his life, and he perfectly obeyed the law. And it's in contrast to us, right? Jesus 
fulfilled the law, he obeyed the law. In contrast, we have broken God's laws. We have transgressed God's laws. We deserve the judgment of God because of that. And we can't try to follow his laws and be good enough for God. We can't please God enough by obeying his, uh, his laws. But Jesus could and Jesus did. So Jesus fulfilled the law by perfectly obeying it in our place. But then also he fulfilled the prophecies of the Messiah. Romans chapter 10 verse 4 says Christ is the culmination of the law. He is the end of the law. He's the, the fulfillment of the law. I remember when I was growing up, we uh, lived in a two-story home. And in order to get to my bedroom, you would go up the stairs and then you go down a long hallway, and at the very end was our bedroom. I had a, a, a bunk bed. I was on the top. My brother was on the bottom. And at night, the lights would be off, and we could hear people walking up the steps. It was kind of a crickety staircase, and then the, the hallway as well creaked, so you couldn't really sneak around our house very well. And so we could hear people, when we were in our beds, we could hear people walk up the stairs. And then once they got to the, the hallway, we could see their shadow cast on our wall. And based on the sounds and on the sides of the shadows and other things, we could tell who the person was. Of course, if we were being naughty, we could tell that probably if it was bigger steps and a deeper voice that was calling out to us, it was my father and it wasn't going to be a good thing, right? Or sometimes he would come up and give us a goodnight kiss, and so that was a good thing. But the point is, the, the shadows, the noises, they, were, they, they, um, they showed us that something was to come. When a person walked into that door, they were the, the culmination of that anticipation, whether it be for good or for bad. And so think about those shadows. Think about those noises and the anticipation that we as children would have had for someone coming. And that's the picture we have of the Old Testament. We have these, these shadows, these, these pictures, these, 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 this imagery, these laws, and they're really anticipating the coming of Jesus Christ. And so the point of all these laws and these ceremonies is to look forward to Christ's coming. And so, for instance, we have the lambs in the Old Testament that were sacrificed, and they look forward to Christ coming as the Lamb of God who was sacrificed for our sins. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 says this, says that all these ceremonies and sacrifices were a shadow of good things that were to come, but not the realities themselves. And the point is this. The point is what Jesus is experiencing here as a baby are the shadows, but he is the reality. What's amazing to consider is that Jesus was going through all these rituals, even as a baby, and they were all picturing him coming to redeem his people. So when we see in verse 22, really 22, 23, and 24, we see two ceremonies that foreshadow the coming of Christ. So look at verse 22. Here in verse 22, we see the first ceremony. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses. The first ceremony was the purification of Mary. According to Leviticus chapter 12, after a woman gave birth, she was considered ceremonially unclean until they brought a sacrifice to the temple. So that took place 40 days after the birth of Jesus. So you, so you would have had the birth of Jesus, then eight days, and then 32 more days, and they would have all gone to the temple, and they would have brought a sacrifice. 
And ordinarily, you would have brought a lamb to be sacrificed. But if you were poor, you would bring a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So look in verse 24, and you can see that. That's what Jesus, or that's what Mary and Joseph brought for their purification. The second ceremony was the presentation of their firstborn son for redemption. You can see that in verse 22. They brought him up to Jerusalem to, and here we have it, to present him to the Lord. So what is that talking about? What does it mean to present him to the Lord? Well, this was a particular ceremony that spoke of redemption, that pictured the redemption that we have in Christ. And so to really explain this, I really need to go, have us go back to Exodus. Think about the Exodus. Think about what happened when Israel was redeemed out of slavery in Egypt. Remember, Pharaoh had really sinned against God and led Egypt into this sin. He had hardened his heart against God. And because of the sin of Pharaoh, God's wrath fell upon Egypt and upon all the households in Egypt. That included the Egyptians and actually the Israelite household as well. Right? And, and the last judgment that God brought upon Egypt was that the firstborn son would die. So God designated a certain night, said this is the night of judgment when God himself, the presence of God, would pass over each home and judgment would come to that house unless that family sacrificed a spotless lamb and trusted that that lamb would purchase the life of their firstborn son. So that family, what they would do is they'd take that lamb, they would sacrifice it, they'd eat the lamb, and then they would put the blood on the doorpost of the house. And that showed that their faith was in the Lord and his sacrifice. And those who, those who trusted the Lord in that way, their firstborn son was redeemed. And those who did not, their firstborn son died. So that, that, that was a real historic event but it was designed by God to foreshadow the future redemption provided by Christ. So think about that. Think of the similarities between what happened to Israel and Egypt there and what that foreshadowed. In a, in a similar way that Pharaoh caused judgment to fall upon Egypt, Adam's sin has caused all humanity to be plunged under the condemnation of eternal death. So just as just as Pharaoh caused all in Egypt to have this condemnation, at least the firstborn, Adam's sin has called, caused all of us to have condemnation. In a similar way that the lamb was a substitute and died in the place of the firstborn sons, Jesus came as the lamb of God, and he was sacrificed on the cross in our place. And the remarkable thing about God the Father is that he sent his one and only son to be that sacrifice. For us. In a similar way that Israel was to trust in God's substitute to redeem them, we are to trust in Jesus that he is a substitute who redeems us. So you might be listening to this thinking, what in the world does this have to do with this presentation? Well, this was a way for them to remember that God had redeemed them and to remember that each person needed to be redeemed. Forty days after the birth of your firstborn son, the parents would come to the temple and they would actually present their sons, their firstborn sons, to the temple and literally deliver their sons over to the temple. 
So, so the picture is that in Egypt, they were to deliver their sons up to the Lord. In other words, that the Lord says, I deserve to have all of these sons, but they could be redeemed by the blood of a lamb. And when they go to the temple, they were to redeem their sons as well. You can study this in Exodus 13, Numbers chapter 3, a couple other texts as well. But in the ceremony, what would happen is the parents would take their firstborn son, and they would go up to a priest. The priest would take that son from them, and the priest would ask, which do you prefer, to, to give up your own son or to redeem him? In other words, do you want to give him to the temple, or would you want to buy him back? And the father would say, to redeem him. Then the father would hand five shekels to the priest, and the baby would be handed back to the parents to take home. And, and again, this is all the symbolism, and what's the whole purpose of that? Well, it's a shadow, right? It's a shadow to show that all of us need to be redeemed, and that there's going to be one that's going to come, and he's the only one who can redeem us, and that's the Lord himself. And the irony of the whole scene is this, that at this ceremony, the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, was redeemed. Isn't that remarkable to think about? So in this ceremony right here, the Redeemer is being redeemed. And so the sacrifices they gave, it prefigured the sacrifice that Jesus would give on the cross. The redemption they paid foreshadowed the exchange of his life for ours. And what, a, what an amazing concept. And, and I don't know if you think about all those different laws and those ceremonies, and sometimes you can get lost in it, but it's an amazing picture of what was to come. Some of it actually should cause us to marvel, to go, wow, isn't that amazing how God put all this in place for Israel to consider the future Messiah? And for us to look back and say, look how God saw that was going to come, and he perfectly planned it out. But really, that's not the most amazing part of it, is it? Because it's not just that the shadows are marvelous. It's that the reality is marvelous, that Jesus truly is the Redeemer, right? He truly did save us. He purchased our freedom from hell and from eternal wrath. He brought us into the family of God. So marvel that he's the redeemer. Yes, who was foreshadowed, but he's the redeemer who saves us from our sins. And then next was marvel that he is the comforter for those who wait in faith. Marvel that he is the comforter for those who wait in faith. Look at verse 25. Verse 25, the Bible says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. I want you to imagine the, the temple complex and Mary and Joseph taking the little baby in that complex. And, you know, they go up to that priest and they do that, that ceremony. And then at some point, this older man comes up to them named Simeon. This man claims that God speaks to him, and he wants to take their baby and hold this baby. Now, if you, are, if you have had a child or a grandchild, and uh, you've been out and about with that child or grandchild, you'll notice that many people like to, to touch babies, don't they? Sometimes people even want to are as bold to say, may I hold your baby? You ever had that happen to you? Now, maybe with COVID, that doesn't happen as much. I'm not really certain. Maybe it probably shouldn't happen in any ways. But people are very bold with that. Remember when we had our little ones like that, especially some who were um, sickly at the very beginning of their, um, of their, in their one year, as, as a one-year-old, 
And uh, people would just come up, you know, they want to take their hand and wiggle their hand and touch their cheeks, and you're kind of freaking out a little bit by it. So, so imagine Jesus as a little baby, and here they're holding this little baby, and this man comes and takes this baby and wants to hold him. And honestly, the truth is, with everything that's happening with this baby, it's kind of like whatever, Lord, you want to do, right? <laughs> I mean, there's a sense where it's like, yeah, take it. You have a prophecy? Let's hear it. We've heard a lot of other things going on. And so this, this man, Simeon, takes Jesus in his hands, and he prophesies about him. Now, we really don't know very much about Simeon. He was evidently a man who lived in Jerusalem and regularly visited the temple. If you look at verse 25, you can see he's described as a man who was righteous, devout. The Holy Spirit was upon him. And I don't think this means that Simeon was some type of superhero saint or he was a self-righteous person. It didn't mean that he had some type of intrinsic goodness in himself. I think it's a description of a man who, who trusts God and trusts the word of God. Like Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So I think this is, the, this is Simeon right here. He believes God and therefore God has gifted him his righteousness, God's righteousness. So the question is then, what did Simeon believe about God? Well, he says that in verse 25, or the scripture says that in verse 25. It says, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, or literally the, the, the comfort of Israel. This was a title for the Messiah, and that comes from passages like Isaiah chapter 40. Would you turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 40? Back in the Old Testament, pretty much if you just open your Bible, straight in the middle of it, you'll get there. Isaiah chapter 40. A favorite Christmas tradition for many people is attending the Handel's Messiah. Anyone, is anyone able to do that this year? Go to Handel's Messiah. Oh, there's a couple people. And just a little random fact for you. When I was in college, I got to sing in the Handel's Messiah. So that was an interesting experience to learn that, those songs. But one of the scores of the Handel's Messiah has Isaiah chapter 40. In fact, as we read this, you'll probably maybe even sing it in your head or think about that song. So look at Isaiah chapter 40. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, comfort. So this is this idea of this Messiah is going to come and comfort the people of Israel, God's people. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her Warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord, Lord's hand double for all her sins. So Isaiah 40, 1 through 2, we could really even keep reading, but we're going to stop right there. This text promises that the Messiah would come, and he's going to come with comfort. He's going to be the comfort of Israel. And what does that mean he's going to do? Well, for Israel, back at that time, in, in the time of Isaiah, they were exiled, and they had all these enemies around them. Back at the time of Christ, they had Rome. So many people probably thought, well, he's going to comfort us by conquering our enemies, right? But actually, if you look in the text there, how will he comfort them? He will actually pardon their iniquity. And it's not that he's going to come and save them from their enemies, although ultimately that will happen but he's going to come and save them first from themselves. He's going to save them from their sin and the punishment they deserve. 
So if you look at the beginning of Isaiah 40, you see the prophecy, the Messiah will come, he will comfort his people, he's going to pardon their iniquity, he's going to do the work that's going to, that's going to end the wrath of God for their sin, and he's going to bring pardon. Then if you look at the end of Isaiah 40, look at verse 31, you see a description of those who trust in Messiah. Look at Isaiah 40, verse 31, kind of this bookend here of this chapter. So those who trust in the comfort to come in the Lord himself, verse 31, but they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You can sum up Isaiah 40 like this. The Messiah will come to comfort with forgiveness and pardon, and those who trust the Messiah wait on him. Now go back to Luke chapter 2, because what we see with Simeon is this type of faith. Luke chapter 2, we're going to see here, or we see there, that he's waiting, waiting on the Lord for the comfort of Israel. He's waiting for this Messiah. That Isaiah 40 Messiah that's going to come. He's waiting for that Messiah. He's trusting that he's going to come. And then God revealed to him that he would not die until he actually physically laid eyes on this Messiah. That day finally came. In some way, the Holy Spirit said to him, go, the Messiah is in the temple and your faith is now sight. Look at verse 26. Luke chapter 2, verse 26. And it had been revealed to him, that Simeon, by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit moved him, spoke to him, and brought him to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed him. Now, can you imagine being Simeon? We're assuming here that Simeon's an old man. Can you imagine being Simeon and living your whole life and you're trusting this Messiah is going to come? You're reading the Old Testament. You're reading about this one to come. And then you receive a revelation. You're not going to die until you physically look at the Messiah. And then you go to the temple, and in some way the Holy Spirit says, that's him right there, and you see this little baby, the Messiah, there as a child. And then he began, began to sing over him. That's what we see in verse 29. Verse 29, he, sa- he sings this song to the Lord. Lord, now you are letting your servant Depart in peace according to your word. He's saying, I am now ready to die. I have seen the one who came to save, and now I will depart in peace. What a wonderful example of faith. A man who believed the word of God, he had no reason to, to, to he had no, he did not see this child until he actually lay eyes on him, but he believed the Lord's promise. This Messiah would come, and he he was convinced that he would come before he died. And then once he saw it, he trusted that, that it was his time to go. 
what a wonderful example of trusting the Lord, of longing for the Messiah, really of living for the life to come. His life was not about that life right there. It was about the next one. He was trusting in the Lord's Messiah. He, you could say it this way, he was ready to die. And I think as you read a text like this, it makes me ask the question, am I ready to die? Am I ready? If, if the Lord came back today, am I ready to go to heaven? If, is it like today's the day that I'm ready? I've, I've lived my life of faith. I've trusted the Lord. I'm ready to enter into his presence. Or maybe you don't know the Lord. And so the question for you is, are you ready to die? Are you ready to meet the Lord really in judgment without Christ as your Savior? See, soon our lives on this earth will be over. All the material things, all those presents that you opened up yesterday, they're all going to be gone. They'll all be forgotten. Everything will be in the past. And all that will be is what is before us. And as believers in Christ, our eternity is a blessing. We're going to be with our Redeemer. We look forward to that. Death is not the end. Death is the beginning. It's not that we're going, oh, I, I don't want that. I'm, I'm dreading that day that I'm going to die. It's I'm looking forward to that day that I can see Christ. And maybe it's today. Maybe our Messiah will come back today. Praise God if that were to happen. Or maybe I'm going to die and I'll see my Messiah. But either way, I'm ready for that. It's better to be in the presence of the Lord. I don't have a death wish upon me. Don't say, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is I, we, I think we should look forward to the day that we see Jesus Christ. And so the question is, am I ready to be with the Lord? And if the answer is no, then I think the next question is why? Why would you say that? And I, and I know sometimes we think, well, I, I like my family. I like to enjoy my life. And that's true. And I think actually it's good to, to love your family and to enjoy the life God has given to you. You should do that, right? But there's something far better beyond this life. And that's why Colossians 3, 2 says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on this earth. Put your affections, put your thoughts, put your minds on heavenly realities. What are those heavenly realities? Well, he says in verse 4 of Colossians 3, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So set your mind upon Christ, upon his glory, and his coming. We should, we should be thinking about, in our minds, about Christ's soon return. He could return any day. And when he returns, it'll be a glorious day. We'll be in his presence. We'll be able to perfectly enjoy his presence. I mean, honestly, if you're fighting sin, if you're fighting sin, you're looking forward to that day because <laughs> that war is going to be over. Now, if you're giving into sin, you're going to go, well, a couple more days would be kind of nice, right? But if you're fighting sin, you're going, Lord, I, I come back, please. And if you're longing to see Christ, if you're enjoying him, if you're loving him, then you get to be in the presence of the one whom you love. So let's marvel that he is the comfort for those who wait in faith. And then last, marvel that he is salvation for all nations. Marvel that he is salvation for all nations. Look at verse 28. Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, so here he has this prayer, this song, Lord, 
Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. That's this baby, your salvation. That you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon believed that the baby was the Messiah, the comforter, but also the Lord's salvation. He believed he embodied salvation. Look at verse 30. For my eyes have seen what? Not just a little baby, but salvation. That baby embodied salvation. Literally, they, he was holding God in the flesh who came to save. And this salvation, this baby was, look at verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, to the nations. That's us, right? That, we're the Gentiles. We're the nations. This is a, a light for the revelation to us. In fact, let's do this one last time. Go to Isaiah chapter 9. So you've already been to Isaiah, so you already know where it's at, right? So go to Isaiah 9. And a number of times in Isaiah, the prophet, is, the prophet describes the Messiah as a light to the Gentiles. And we could go through a number of texts and see that. We're not going to do that. But as you're turning to Isaiah 9, let me read another text for you in Isaiah. Isaiah 49, 6 says, I will make you as a light for the Gentiles, as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So, so the prophecies of Isaiah said that the Messiah would offer salvation to Israel, but also extend that out beyond Israel to all people. And so in Isaiah chapter 9, we see what is, again, another familiar Christmas text. Of course, it's not just a Christmas text, right? It's for all times of the year, but whatever. That goes with the like joy to the world, too, actually. That's another sermon, though. But, so look at Isaiah chapter 9. Look at verse 1. Just going to start in the middle of this verse. This is a prophecy of the Messiah's ministry. He, he says, But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations or of the Gentiles. So I'm not going to be able to go through this whole verse, but here's a hint here that the Messiah would minister actually himself to the Gentiles. Then look at verse 2. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has the light shone. Then go down to verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So the prophecy of Isaiah was that the Messiah would be a light to the nations, a, a light to the Gentiles. Those in darkness would see a great light, and that would come through a child, for unto us a child is born. And that child would be called a number of things, but one of them is mighty God. That's remarkable, isn't it? Now go back with me to Luke chapter 2. Because who, who was that baby prophesied? Who, who was that light that was to come? Well, we know that's Jesus. 
John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And Jesus is the light of the world, which means he exposes our sin, like his holiness, his righteousness, shows us that we're not righteous, but also he invites us into the light. He cleanses us from sin. He makes us his righteous, holy children by his work on the cross. Now look at Luke chapter 2, verse 33. The scripture says, after they heard this, his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. They heard the prophecy of their baby and they were in awe. I mean, can you imagine taking that baby back in your arms and realizing that all these things that are being said are being said about this baby in your hand. Like the redemption of all people rests in this baby that you have to take care of. Now that's responsibility right there, isn't it? When um, our first was born, Isabel, she was born at 26 weeks. And I can remember the first time that we held her. I don't remember how much she weighed. When she was born, she was two pounds she got as low as one pound, seven ounces. And I think it was like within a week that we were able to hold her. But she was just a small, fragile thing with tubes and sensors all over her. It was, it was crazy. And I was so scared to hold this little baby. Can you imagine holding and then, then raising this child on whom the redemption of all people you know, rested? What a great responsibility Mary had. And actually, I think about that and just responsibility that she had she took it she trusted the lord but we have a great responsibility as well we have a responsibility to take the gospel and to shine the light of the gospel to the nations as we think about 2022 that's going to be coming up in a couple days here so think about this next year i think it's good for us to think through texts like this and ask ourselves the question how Am I, how am I stewarding the resources God has given me? How will I steward the resources God gives me? How will I steward the opportunities he's given me or the, the gifts he's given me? How will I use what he's given me to further the kingdom of God, to shine the light of the gospel around our city and around our world? Like what opportunities should I plan for this next year? As we think through this next year, I think it's good for us not just to plan our vacations and for us to plan out our budgets and all that kind of stuff. It's good for us also to plan to say, how can we shine the light of the gospel? How can we reach Simi Valley? How can we reach California? How can we reach our world with the gospel of Jesus Christ? We have a great responsibility. Then what's interesting, you see in verse 34, that Simeon turns and speaks directly to Mary. Now, it's interesting that he doesn't speak to Joseph and Mary, just to Mary. Of course, 33 years later, Joseph won't be on the scene anymore. At some point, Joseph passed away. And so look at verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother. Now, listen to what, what is being said to Mary. I want you to just think about Mary. Here's Mary, probably around the age of 14, right? She's just had a baby. She's had some amazing things said to her. She's taking care of this baby, responsible for it. And here's a prophecy for her. Behold, this child is appointed 
for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. There in verse 34, the fall of many speaks of of people stumbling over the idea of Jesus being a crucified Savior. Most Jews were looking for a political Savior. They wanted someone who's going to conquer, who would be the king that would get rid of the Romans, but actually he was going to be a suffering Savior. And that was a stumbling block to many Jews. The rising of many speaks of those Jews who believed in Jesus' sacrificial work on the cross, and therefore they were lifted up by grace. And then look at verse 35. This is a very remarkable prophecy for Mary. A sword will pierce through your own soul also. Mary witnessed firsthand the literal piercing of Jesus' hands and his feet and his side. She looked on from afar as he was pierced and he suffered on that cross for our sin. And she emotionally and spiritually was pierced in her soul as she saw him in agony on that cross. I think about Mary as she was hearing this, how innocent Mary was at this moment. In, not just innocent in regard to even the cross, but even in life. You know, she's this young girl. What does she know about life? And yet, she's being told that there's going to be a day when it's going to get a, it's going to be far worse. Little did she know that that the horror that her son would go through to have these prophecies fulfilled. One day, her boy would be despised and be rejected. He would be led as a lamb to the slaughter. He would face the wrath of man because of their own sin and the wrath of God because of our sin. And Mary would have her soul pierced with the pain as she looked on. We know that Mary looked on in faith. She she trusted the Lord, but a sword of of sorrow would still pierce her heart. But it didn't last for long, did it? It only lasted for three days. Because after three days, Jesus rose from the grave. And there she was able to look upon him, the one whom they pierced, and the one that caused her own soul to be pierced, right? And she worshipped him. Think about that. Mary worshipped her son because he is the son of God. She prayed to him along with the other New Testament believers, and she trusted that he is the Redeemer. She trusted in him. She, as long as, as well as everyone else that trusted in him, marveled that he is a salvation for all people. That included the Jews. It includes us as Gentiles. Does the, the reality of who Jesus is, does it cause you to marvel? Does it cause you to think, wow, I cannot believe not only that this all happened, like this, the amazing history of redemption, it's remarkable, but also that God has included me in on it. He saved me. I deserve to be separated from him. I deserve to have the, the punishment 
and judgment of God upon me forever. But he has given me the exact opposite. He's given his son as a sacrifice in my place. And he offers that to all who trust in his son, Jesus Christ. He offers forgiveness and pardon. And friend, if you're in here without Christ, if you're in here still living your life for your own self and enjoying the sin of this world, really experiencing the pain that comes with that, Christ invites you to come to him today. And not just to marvel at the truth of his person, but to give your life to him, to trust in his son, to trust in the son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. As we go into prayer, I'm going to ask our worship team to come on up. As we go into a time of prayer, let me invite you to go before the Lord in prayer. Each one of us as believers, I think we can all in our hearts praise the Lord. We can marvel, we can pray and wonder that God has included us in his plan. Let's do that in our hearts right now. Would you pray to the Lord in your own heart and praise him for what he has done for you? If you're in here and you're without Christ, let me invite you to humble yourself before him right now, to call upon him and say, Lord, I deserve your judgment. I'm a sinner, but Lord, I believe in your son, Jesus Christ, and to give your life to him, to follow him as your Lord and Savior. Father, we are thankful that your word speaks to us. Simeon was able to hear the revelation from you through his Holy Spirit. We are able to hear the revelation of you through the word of God as your spirit illumines our minds. And so, Lord, as we have looked at your word, we believe what we've read is true. But Lord, we don't want to stop right there. We want to change our life. Lord, as we, as we sing, as we pray, as we live, we want to live in the reality and the wonder of the cross, and the wonder that Christ came as a baby, God in the flesh, the incarnate Son of God, to live, to die, and to be resurrected for us. Lord, I pray that we will no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and who rose again for us, we pray in Jesus' name.